Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Now Hear This is a music review podcast and is not directly affiliated with any artists or album projects discussed on the show. Think of us like your record collection come to life. Except for that Vin Diesel single you bought just like everyone else this year. It was neither fast nor furious, and frankly, I feel as though we were implicitly promised at least one of those things. You got a record of your favorite songs. You got an hour and it won't take long. You got a pair of brand new friends. You got a ticket gonna stick to the end. I said, now hear this. Let's talk about the exile. What, you had a tax lien? You know, people forget this story. We had some very bad advice, and we were, you know, pretty green in some ways, and we were just interested in making music, and we weren't really interested in the money side of things too much. Very typical story. We had to leave England to acquire enough money to pay the taxes. You know, most English people have been to France when they were kids, you know, it's like the next door country. And Somerset Maugham, though, said, you know, a, what did he say? It was a sunny place for shady people. <laughs> like to welcome to now hear this luther russell luther you are a, a songwriter musician been in a zillion bands over the years the boot heels those pretty wrongs so many and i am a of course a great admirer of your beetle conversation on the podcast something about the beatles with robert rodriguez and then you joined us on our yesterday and today podcast recently which was awesome so thank you for joining me on uh, now hear this today Thank you. Thank you, Paul. It's great to be here. And I'm a fan. Uh, it's Mutual Admiration Society. I'm a fan <laughs> of what you guys do, too. And uh, well, hopefully that magic rubs off on the Stones multiverse. Yeah, well, so we're both big Beatle fans, but today we are crossing enemy lines. <laughs> crossing <laughs> <are>. the Rubicon. <laughs> <laughs> and we're going to talk about the album Exile on Main Street by the Rolling Stones. This was on Ryan's list, so we're, we're still going down Ryan's list here of, of his favorite records. And so I'm just so happy that you could be here to join me today to talk about this. Now, thank you. let's talk about your Stones background, Luther, because oh, wow, you know yeah. about your Beatle fandom. You know, we've talked about that on other shows, but what stones were you first introduced to? What are some of the, the top picks? Where do you land on your entry Where do I point? land on the stones? Uh, I am, I'm a big fan. I think I land on the stones almost in the same way as I land on the Beatles in that I was sort of raised on, for better or worse, raised on the stones pretty early. My folks were a little bit in that world, tangentially, you know, they lived in London in 69. They were friends with the Stones publicists. I mean, not 
all that to say that the records were around and they were played. But the Stones, at least in the growing up in the 70s, they held a, a much different type of allure. Like there was definitely an element of danger yeah. associated with them. And I mean, all you got to do is look at a picture from a Stones concert in 1970s and you'll get the picture. Like you've never seen a larger group of just vagrants, deadbeats, <laughs> drug addicts, ne'er-do-wells. Uh, I mean, it's not its not a pretty picture. Yeah. And I had kind of funkier members of my family, you know, that I would sometimes get saddled with babysitting. They would get saddled with babysitting me, and I'd get saddled with being babysat by them, older <laughs> members of my family. And they'd always – you'd walk in, and there's the Stones records. Wow. You know, it's, it's, it's just – funky vibe on the stones what's your sweet spot what's your sweet spot record my sweet spot record with the stones is probably most people's sweet spot which is you know i'm squarely in the mick taylor era but i would say my ultimate stones record is probably sticky fingers yeah it's just kind of a sort of a perfection type of thing for me i think it has their best songs or their best everything but beggars banquets right up there with it this is you know i think with the stones you go through different phases in life mm. because if you had asked me like 20 years ago i may have said exile and and lately also like some girls tattoo you has always been a big favorite of mine because that was like the album in junior high and high school <laughs> like got up to my own no good shenanigans to that album for yeah, sure that was back in the 80s you know you know, I have similar feelings about Voodoo Lounge because that was my, mm. I mean, I wasn't a teenager at the time, but it hit me in my youth and stuck with me for a while, which is not an album people reference terribly often. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a good record, though. It's, it's actually a pretty good record. That The big single was Love Oh, is there's cool. a great ballad on there called The Worst. Yeah. That Keith, I am the worst, baby. <laughs> well, I said... From the first, I'm the worst kind of guy for you to be around. Tear me apart, including this all heart that is true, and never ever let you down. I had the benefit of the Stones were just as big in the 70s as they were in the 60s. It's not like the Beatles thing because the Beatles were big, but they were broken up. So you'd get the solo stuff on the radio. Right. But with the Stones, the Rolling Stones were on the radio growing up and they were killer singles. Yeah. I yeah. mean, Miss You was everywhere. You know, Emotional Rescue was everywhere. You know, I mean, I loved Black and Blue. You know, I listened to that a billion times. The Hand of Fate you know, yeah. or and my dad had the records and my dad loved the stones. So I guess I'm kind of like, I don't think I had a choice. Right. Yeah. But my, uh, discovery of them was on my own actually. Cause my dad wasn't the biggest fan. Um, he, you know, he had the records. I was aware of some of the songs and stuff, but it just wasn't something that he was playing around the house too much. And so when I got to be about 22, I did a deep dive into the Who and I did a deep dive into the Stones kind of on my own. 
And where I landed on the who was like, I preferred like the who are you era where like Keith's drinking problem is really bad. And like (laughs) the the melodies have gotten a little tighter, but like everyone's sick of each other at that point. Like that was, that's my who sweet spot. (laughs) But for the Rolling Stones, it was let it bleed. And that's it with me. Really? I mean, that's pretty much all. It's a killer record. It's a killer record. I mean, Song for song, listenability-wise, that's my sweet spot. That's where I come back to. And I tried the exile thing back then, and it didn't grab me. In fact, the only track from that record, the record we're about to talk about today, that stuck with me in any meaningful way was Ventilator Blues, which is (laughs) sort of, it's an odd song, but it's a great song. And it scratches my garage rock itch. Oh, yeah. Because, you know, I'm a big, big White Stripes fan, and... When I hear a song like Ventilator Blues, I go, okay, I understand this now, <laughs> you know, kind yeah, of. Yeah, yeah. You're Sometimes coming you need... at it from yeah. a different angle. It's more of a rear view mirror look at the music, you know, it's kind of like yeah. it happened already. And you look, you know, I mean, it's a certain respect. A lot of stones happened already for me growing up too, because they were prevalent in the sixties, but I think it's harder to grasp onto the sense of danger that back then this is pre punk. They were synonymous with, the danger in rock and roll. And it's hard for people to understand now because they're just a bunch of old guys going out there and kicking it out. But we're not in that phase of the Stones. Back then, they scared your mama. Right. They were were very, any, you know, they were decadent. I mean, if you want to talk about Exile and why I think it's hailed as such a masterpiece, it's because, and we're in a very different era now. The Stones aren't very in vogue because they are sex decadence misogyny Mm. to a certain degree danger kind of ennui they're just that id that thing that you know you put on their albums back then because it was everything you weren't allowed to be allowed to think it's more of an atmosphere it's more of a feeling and that's i mean we'll talk about it when we dive into the record here but i think that's ultimately where i land with this record is i like the idea of it more than I think I like the actual tunes. It's the kind of record I would love to put on at a bar on like a jukebox and just let the thing ride because that's really, to me, what it is. It's almost like (laughs) soundtrack music in a way. It's like a soundtrack to a movie I've never seen or something. But That's so, that's, that's dead on. I mean, I was just saying to my buddy the other day, we were talking about it. It's his favorite Stones record. And I said... I think people are in love with the idea of Exile Main Street more than they're in love with the content. Oh, but not not to put down the content. I think it's it's absolutely brilliant content, but they came to the content different than they normally would come to content. I think, you know, we'll get into it, but I, I think Mick doesn't look as fondly back on the album because to him it was probably a bit of a chore, that record. Yeah. Like everyone's bunch of wastrels in a basement to this unending jam session. And then when he finally came time to actually turn it into a record, he kind of had to like shoulder all the entire poetic lyrical world of it and yeah. come up with all that stuff. It, I can just, it feels like a chore, but not in a bad way. It just feels like a chore in that I've read things about him using every possible technique to come up with lyrics, like on Casino Boogie, it being like a cut up thing, like William Burroughs thing. Basically, they're like, we got to finish this. Yes. Because yeah. we've got a tour lined up. And and sometimes that's a great way to, to approach a record. It's just 
different. You know, yeah. I see it as the anti-Sticky Fingers in a way. Right, yeah. Well, let's talk a little bit about the story of how the album came to be. So this was a transformative time in the Stones' life because Brian Jones died in 69. And it's the kind of thing where, yeah, he was sort of sliding into the substance abuse and sort of becoming almost a background figure in a way, but it was kind of his band, pretty much. I mean, in a lot of ways, Brian's band, you know. And so you have the end of the 60s, you have the death of Brian, and you have the Beatles dissolving, and Mick holds it together. And he guides them, in a lot of ways, through some of their best musical efforts around that time. You mentioned Sticky Fingers, Beggar's Banquet, stuff like that sort of in that neighborhood and the real genesis of the album exile on main street comes from the fact that they were actually in exile so they had gotten into business with this manager some beatle fans have heard of named alan klein (laughs) (laughs) a lovely gentleman (laughs) (laughs) you ask me where's the money where's the money i mean i don't know where the money is i've never been good with figures you know that I don't know anything about math. It was never my good subject. I don't know where the money is, but if you need money, I'll give you money. The Stones, I believe, pawned him off onto the Beatles to to really probably primarily get out (laughs) from under him, right? Is that That's the mythology. They were the only way to fall up for him. Right. (laughs) And so anyway, they were in some hot financial water with the result of this these deals with Alan Klein. And they were also dealing again, through those ABCO problems with all this back tax that they owed in Britain to the point where they actually had to go into tax exile. They had to leave their home country because this business had gotten so awful. It's also around this time where there's a sense amongst the 60s musicians that the 60s didn't work And there was a dejection that went along with that, almost a depression, hangover, right? Those first couple of years after the 60s, feeling maybe a little bit like a hangover. And that affected the Stones more than most because they were still trying to make it work. They were still trying to hold it together. So they did a farewell tour of Britain and then went into tax exile in the south of France. And uh, Keith moved into this baller mansion on the coast, which is like, gorgeous you ever see it's hard to feel sorry for them to be honest (laughs) (laughs) well yeah and he had a kid and with his girlfriend at the time and yeah they really loved it down there because they could live normally i mean it seems odd to think that you know france isn't exactly like the ends of the earth so people knew who the rolling stones were but it was much less than it was in britain so they had some freedom they had some anonymity to kind of navigate their lives with a, a bit more normalcy And so Mick at the time was married. He had just gotten married to uh, Bianca in France. And Paul and Ringo were both in attendance for that wedding, which is cool because you see, uh, you know, Ringo was still with Maureen at the time. And it was those early wings days for Paul. Apparently there was an awkward uh, private jet ride, right, to the wedding. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Because Paul and Ringo were sort of in the throes of the lawsuit and they the last people they probably wanted to see was each other on that, <laughs> on that jet to the wedding. <laughs> just to inject a little beetle, a uh, little background. Right. Paul was just like, you thought me kicking you out of my house was bad. I'm going to kick you out of the Yeah, plane. exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Hope you got a parachute, Ringo. Right, right, right. 
And so they're just in the south of France with a mess of drugs, just uh, trying to learn French. <laughs> oh, man. And needing to sustain this lifestyle. So they had started their own record label at this time, which was distributed through Atlantic. And Atlantic was expecting a new album every 18 months. And so they had to get to work. It's like what we were saying earlier in the conversation is like, we had to finish this thing. Why they chose to make a, a double album and make double the work for themselves, I don't know. But um, Keith I don't think say, they intended it. You know, I just think they just kind of ended up liking everything they did or they were probably just, you know, I, I mean, if you're the Stones at that time, let's face it, the Beatles are done. You're the new Kings. And mm-hmm. probably you think everything you shit is gold. Yeah. And in this case, it just, they happen to be at their peak, you know, creatively. Uh, and as we'll discover, there was a lot of tracks kicking around from the Sticky Fingers era and even before mm. that wound up onto this record. So, yeah, they, I guess there was a lot of material. I would argue this would have made a much better single album, but. <laughs> yeah, some people would say that. I mean, it's kind of got the white album problem, though, where you're like, then what tracks do you choose? And then does it work better as a sort of sprawling mess? You know, it, 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 it is yeah. a statement and in a weird way it does because kind of like going with what you were saying at the beginning of the conversation, you're probably right that the idea of the record is what's kind of the prevailing thing. It's there's a, yeah. there's a cl- exile cloud, you know, kind of. Yeah. You're in that house. You're in that mansion with them recording. Well, my, my theory on this album is every great band had its getting it together in the country moment, <laughs> you know, and this is their basement tapes in a sure, way. Sure. You know, this is their version of it, which is to say decamping to some, you know, extravagant mansion in the south of France, you know, but still it's kind of there. Like the only time I can recall the Stones probably lived in some house together and jammed and made a record. They talk about that a lot in the process of recording the record, but I think Charlie was a little salty because he had like a three, no, he had like a five hour drive to mix and they would work all odd hours. It sounded like Charlie Watts just hated everything about this. Yeah, probably. It probably was terribly (laughs) inconvenient for him. Yeah. I actually know I actually know which ones I would take on which ones I would leave. Like I was going to say this for the end, but I'll just say I would take for me personally, I'd take rocks off. Tumbling dice, love and cup, and then cut everything else until you hit ventilator. Wow, uh, I'd, I'd have to look at the, the track. List, but, <laughs> but again, you know, I can see that because you're right. It slides into a lot of from that point on that you're talking about. It slides into a lot of sort of jamming and laid back country and grooving, yeah. and then it picks back up into rock and roll. And so, if you're looking, yeah, if you're looking for sludgy garage rock, it's there. Sure. And it's yeah. it's tempered. But, you know, a lot of people think what's beautiful about the record is these, the sort of quote unquote Graham Parsons side to it. And also this sort of like, just, I think the big allure of the record is that it's hypnotic. It is very hypnotic. hypnotic. And I, and I think to take that hypnosis out of it might dilute the record a little bit, but I can totally see the viewpoint that like, if you're looking for solid rock songs, yeah. you got them and you could distill the record down to that. It was a super eclectic band. I was brought up in the 50s, you know, I like pop music. I didn't just like blues. I loved blues, but, you know, I loved Elvis and, uh, you know, but I loved, you know, crap pop music, like acoustic blues music, country music. We like everything. Plus, you've got all these other people and you're kind of throwing this whole mishmash in. We'd absorbed so much different kinds of music since, since we'd become the Rolling Stones. Maybe we missed America, I don't know. You know. 
Nick and I had always loved country music anyway, you know. You're playing the Midwest in 1964, 65, you ain't going to hear much else. It's the other side of rock and roll, you know. I mean, rock and roll, basically, you know, your blues, uh, put under a little bit of white hillbilly melody. You're going to lose your reputation, baby. Going with every man around you. I'm not being critical of it uh, because obviously it is an important record and it's it's a beautiful record too i guess for my own listenability i'm coming at it from more that beatley place and so an album like let it bleed for me yeah is just a little more listenable you know it's the kind of thing where the i feel like the songs are strong there's a nice melody i can actually understand it <laughs> And so, like, that's oh, the it's, one. It's I'll their Abbey and... Road. Let It Bleed is 100% their Abbey Road. It's a total masterwork for the time. It's it's a 1969 just coup de grace, you know. Um, if you cut out the stuff you said, though, I think the single album you get left with is not as strong as the previous four records whatsoever. Yeah. yeah not you're, even you're... as strong as Beggar's Banquet. I guess I prefer something more like Zeppelin Three, which has this kind of quality, but it's a little more annotated it's a little more compact so if i'm gonna no, go for, for sure no like doubt that, yeah yeah zep three is is kind of where i'm headed but keith would say in retrospect that the songs that would become exile were things that they had internalized from a decade on the road together so wow what you hear a lot in this record is the sex drugs and rock and roll side of things you get a lot of sort of dance hall style ambiance you get a lot of blues stomps you get some rockabilly. You get a lot of what they've, what's in their DNA already, totally. and what they've acquired. You almost get the DNA and not the not the people. You almost get just right. this big, just sprinkle of, of stones. I mean, that sounds disgusting, but you get, <laughs> I I think never has an album cover better felt like the record. Uh huh. Yeah. In a way, you know, yeah. it's like it's messy, it's dark, it's slightly depraved. It's it's there's if you look at the cover, I mean, it's Robert Frank, you know, brilliant artist. The cover literally is freaks. Mm-hmm. I mean, they they were making a statement with this record that this is not pretty, it's messy. But by putting the freaks on the cover, I do think there's a lot of they're showing you where their heart is. They're showing you where they're, which side of the fence they come down on. We come down on the side of the fence of the outcasts, the losers, the freaks, the weirdos. <laughs> and if you really look at it, you're looking at people that were very unique. You know, they're all very unique people. You know, the guy who could shove all the shit in his mouth and the yeah. the little the little people and the, you know, the, the ape man and all these, you know, it's, it's <laughs> a, it was a very unregarded world underworld essentially of people that they're relating to and yet it's also what you get with robert frank is this obsession with america Mm. so you get this that's this is again it's you're the outsider looking in like when they say in tumbling dice i'm the rank outsider that's the person who's gonna pull around hopefully and win the race yeah yeah who shouldn't be allowed to even (laughs) be in the race you know so i think people there's there's something to relate Absolutely. Yeah, it's the thesis statement for the record. I mean, and they, by virtue of having the money, or the, I guess I should say, rather the lifestyle that they had, the extravagance, plus that bad boy image, that sort of vagabond lifestyle. Yeah, they were, 
uniquely um they I, they must have felt suited. they must have felt like freaks yeah i mean i mean they must have felt like sideshow attractions i mean cuz i think at that time it was much easier for you know the the hippies back then they, and they were hippies i mean that was anyone who wasn't in straight society was a hippie and there were not as many hippies as people would like to believe there were and they you just knew by walking out your door you're going to have to take some shit right <laughs> no matter what size color you were or whatever you just right. I just remember what it's like. Even when I was a kid, like in the early 70s, I had long hair down past my shoulders. And I was constantly being told that I had to be a girl. I couldn't be a boy. I was to by some older woman in a bank. It's like, you're too pretty to be a, your hair's too long and luxurious to be a boy. I mean, they couldn't see it. They yeah. couldn't see it. They couldn't, everything had to be perfectly delineated. Oh, right. Or, main, you know, straight society could not see the difference, the, the subtleties there that's that's so crazy <laughs> really it's a really strange like it's hard to, for people to understand that it was a free culture and it hadn't taken over the world you know for better or worse for better or worse but it was the genesis of underground culture sort of overtaking the mainstream it was the second wave of that in a way because the first wave of that would have been at the beginning of Beatlemania, that was the first time underground teenage culture essentially took over. I mean, you could argue that it was the time of Elvis and that happened and that was, but to the degree where it was something like this could not be understood yeah. by visual or by anything. Teenage savages go wild in a juvenile jungle of lust and lawlessness. And I believe with all of my heart that it is a contributing factor to our juvenile delinquency of today. Why I believe that is because I know how it feels when you sing it. I know what it does to you. And I, I know uh, the evil feeling that you feel when you sing it. I know the, the, the lost position that you get into in the beat. Well, uh, if you talk to the average teenager of today and you ask them what it is about rock and roll music that they like, and they'll, the first thing they'll say is the beat, the beat, the beat. That two-beat pattern is the music brought to the United States of America by the communist conspiracy to corrupt teenagers. Then you had the hippie wave, which was, you know, late 60s to early 70s, which was just beat them or join them or whatever. <laughs> it, 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 it was very, very stark is what I'm saying. It's like uh, driving a car without power steering. It's like. <laughs> you think about you think exactly. about these you know beetles stones these types they had to take things to such an extreme to shift the culture just a little bit <laughs> well, I, 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 yeah absolutely i can see that it's true and and they had to taunt you know the stones taunted in their music they did it they leaned into what people thought of them obviously mm. starting with the pictures of them pissing on the wall but they leaned into it for years and years until they couldn't get away with leaning into it. And arguably that was through tattoo you, you know, there were, I remember when the stones toured in 81, there were, there's like a cartoon in the paper. I, it might've even been Doonesbury or something and <laughs> about the stone. They did was a whole series about the stones coming into town and, you know, lock up your daughters and how crazy things <laughs> we're going to get. And that was still going on then. Yeah. It was counterculture, man. And, and there was nothing more, you know, if you heard that your, you know, if your daughter wanted to go to a Stones concert or son or whatever, it, it just you, you were nervous. Yeah, or if you were the lady at the bank, maybe you couldn't tell. You know, if if it was your daughter or your son, <laughs> or your, or your so, son. Exactly. it's so wild to me that somebody at the bank would be like, "You are so luxurious." <laughs> I 
so the Stones have brought their troop to the south of France, and Bianca's pregnant at the time, and so they needed to get this record going, and so they couldn't really spend more than a few days together at the time, and they'd work in these 12-hour stretches with the band members sort of living with one another, as you mentioned, to accommodate the long, strange hours. I lived in a room upstairs, and Keith lived in a huge bedroom up above that, and we had, it was quite, I mean, it was pretty together, really, in a mad sort of way. We would work any time in 24 hours. So if it was 11 o'clock at night, it would go for another 12 hours, or if it was 12 o'clock midday, it would go for 12 hours, you know, whatever time. That's why it, you had to live there. They were in search of some recording studios, but there was nothing that ever quite fit. And so what they decided to do was just set up a mobile studio in Keith's house. And that's why the record sounds muddy in spots or a little... Kind of dingy. Yeah, a little bit. It's, I mean, really, it fits with their sort of Delta Blues obsession anyway, that sort of sound. But it's because the rooms they were recording in were super shitty. And so you have... Bobby Keys up in the kitchen or whatever. And, you'd, and you know, hot, apparently. Very, very hot. hot. And they had to pick these different rooms to do it. And there was this horrible bleed between the, the different tracks. And so that's why it sounds kind of the way it does until later in the recording process. I mean, sort of bookended, right? Keith's house was the main recording of the record. But before that, you had a couple things put down at Olympic in Britain. And after that, you had a few things put down in L.A., and so the bulk of the record does have that sort of, sort of dingy sound. But as I mentioned, Bobby Keys played sax on the record. And he was <laughs> a young guy and having a lot of fun and doing oh, a lot of drugs. In the I think he France. got the most out of the Nelcott experience, I would say. He was, yeah, he talks very fondly of it. Uh, at, at <laughs> yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. And uh, so I guess they're, all the... The family would be there as well, and it was described by Keith's personal photographer as less of a five-piece rock band and more as a tribe, which I think is kind of interesting Jeez. that they sort of set up this compound. <laughs> this oh, yeah. Thing. And then you got Graham Parsons sort of wealthy enough to be able to just basically afford to hang around. Yeah. I mean, there's just so much, so much going on. So many angles. You got the drugs. You got the, you know, the weirdos, the hangers on. Yeah, uh, they said a single track could take up to two weeks to record, and most of the tracks started as jams that just sort of took shape, which you can hear on the record. And in some cases, I read a story of, <laughs> I guess it was this guy Andy. Oh, Andy Johns. Andy, Andy Johns. Johns. Sorry, that's that's Glenn's bro- little brother. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that. Oh, yeah, he cool. he took over the Stone stuff from from Glenn, basically. Yeah. Well, so he t- told this one story of Keith just fell asleep at the yeah <laughs> at the mic. I think it was he just fell asleep, and so Andy's like, "Okay, well, I guess the day is over." And he goes home, and he gets a call from Keith a few hours later, like, "Where where are you? Where'd you go?" And he's like, "Dude, you were you passed out, man." Like. I'm home. I'm in bed. And he's like, 
well, I've figured out the guitar part, so get back here. Get over <laughs> so, here, yeah. Jesus Christ. Which exactly. This is really funny to me. But um In Keith's defense, a lot of great things have happened while he was sleeping. <laughs> you know, the the riff to satisfaction apparently that on the tape there was a whole bunch of the riff and then a bunch of snoring and then the riff or something. That's so wild. So, uh, so there's footage of Charlie using a clothes hanger on a hook on the wall for percussion. Just a lot of freewheeling experimentation and there was an element of sort of back to basics with this. It was the culmination of a lot of different things from their career, but the stones at their base are just sort of blues fans. You know, that's what they, that's the music that they like. That's how Mick and Keith bonded for the first time. I think I remember the stories. They were, they, they met on a bus. They were on a double decker bus and they just met and started talking about the blues and there mm-hmm. you go. So that's their bread and butter which is all like cool and rock and roll and stuff like this whole sort of compound thing is sort of fun until you start thinking like, well, there was also like kids in that mix. And, you know, one of the kids jobs was like, he was like the joint roller. There was Coke. There would be one big meal of the day and there'd be hash in between courses to make sure that the people ate. And Keith and his wife were deep into heroin at the time he was quoted as saying, with a hit of smack, I could get through anything. Painting the picture of a lot of drugs are <laughs> being ingested. Yeah, and when you're that young, too, I mean, you can do them. I mean, you can do what they did. You're superhuman when you're in your 20s. You can do freaking anything, you know? Yeah. And they, and at the same time, they're also, everything they're touching is essentially turning to gold. I mean, they are, with the Beatles' demise, like I mentioned, they are the biggest band in the world. There's no, I don't care who you are, there's no one can touch them. Yeah. And they're also navigating this biggest band in the world of the 60s going into the 70s thing. Right. You know, what does that look like? And and then, you know, in a way, you can see why those early records were denigrated a little bit. They were put down because they could never live up to this, the, the, the sort of climax of the 60s, the Abbey Road, Let It Bleed. I remember growing up reading just nothing but crappy things about Sticky Fingers and Exile Major. If the Stones did it in the 70s, it sucked, <laughs> according to every critic you would read. Yeah. That's just a fact. I mean, you can, all you have to do is look at all the old record guides and stuff, and they're just, they're just spat upon records. They don't, no one, I mean, people enjoyed them, and they were popular, but it's kind of like the Ram McCartney thing. Right. They were just not appreciated in their time, don't yeah. think. They were on a populist way. They were like yeah. Stones fans bought the records, went to the shows. Right. I think critically, they were not appreciated just yet. The seventies with those sixties bands was sort of, yeah, I guess that was their time. You freed of the sixties as an idea, so it's uncharted territory. Where do you go from there? And oh yeah, even Zeppelin was not critics' favorite. You know, right. there were there were it just. There's been a lot of reappreciation, and rightfully so. But before you dive into the music, I, I have to say, like, Exile is interesting because it was it, like my dad had in his collection. It was always there. It seemed like, you know, a record you might skip over. It was there. It was kind of a little bit imposing because it was a double record. But the bottom line was it wasn't regarded very well. It wasn't discussed. And then sometime in the 80s, you know, I remember seeing critics started to talk about it. Like, I think it made like a Rolling Stone list. There were some things that made you want to dig it out. Yeah. And at that point, it was essentially out of print. Hmm. I found an old cassette of it and started listening to it. And, and I guess what I'm getting at is that 
the album held a lot of mystique and a lot of allure when before the times of being able to Google the lyrics and all this major reappreciation and everything like it was just the bastard stepchild that no one wanted to look at or touch. And it was also very, very mysterious. Yeah. What the fuck is he saying on this record? You can't understand any of the lyrics. Even if you read along, <laughs> even if you read along, you're like, you couldn't have really have said that. And then you realize, no, he is saying that. Yeah. But it's sort of like he's shoehorning it in, like, and it, the vocals are buried. So I just want to kind of upfront say that I was part of a generation which started to really appreciate that record and, you know, listen to it and find a lot of mystery in it. And a lot of, since then, a lot of stuff has been demystified about it. There weren't any documentaries. Like I said, you couldn't Google anything. You couldn't, you could not find the lyrics anywhere. You know what the hell he was saying, except for the few lyrics that are in the record. Yeah. So there was a lot of intrigue going on there. Like, what is the deal with this record? And then you, you've, you've read anything about it. The Stones themselves pretty much. <laughs> Keith, Keith seemed to kind of like it, but Mick would talk shit about it. And the other Stones would talk shit about it. You know, it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't particularly appreciated even within the Stone. Yeah. So I just want to put that out there first to say that the gestation of the appreciation took a long time, I think. That's, so, that's really fun. As, there's a pull quote from the episode. Keith seemed to like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, the funny part about it, too, is he like he was asked about I just remember reading an interview years and years and years ago. He was asked about it. he was kind of like they were asking him about his looking back on it. Do you, you, you regret I'm paraphrasing you regret being such a terrible junkie? And he was saying, like, I don't know. I mean, when I was high on smack, I learned to ski and made exile mainstream. <laughs> <laughs> it's Good like for you keith <laughs> yeah i mean i mean so he sort of remembers it fondly i mean who wouldn't but it, it, i i think there's a lot of clarity now drugs uh you know they seep into your life uh, you're not really aware of it at first i think my my first uh Feeding was about that. I mean, I'm working with these guys that are, you know, older. I'm on on the road. He said, "How do you do this, man? You know, I mean, what's the secret? You know, well, you take one of these, you smoke a little bit. Ah, <laughs> the penny drops, you know. But at the same time, it it was all backstage and a sort of uh, secret." It was just made in a time of chaos and for everybody, for the for the world, for the stones, for the culture, for the music. Well, that chaos got a bit out of hand and that's why they eventually wound up in L.A. at Sunset Sound Studios to finish the record. Because I guess there was a robbery at some point and they were basically driven out of Keith's home because it was getting round that there was a lot of drugs at this place and it was looking like they were going to be busted and so they wound up having to retreat, go into exile again, and finish it up in L.A. And those tend to be the tracks I, I prefer on the record, the ones that sound a little cleaner, the ones that sound a little bit more produced. Just Which is odd, though, because I heard that Just Want to See His Face is actually not from the basement, from the studio. Yeah. Which is strange, you know, and, and yet that's one of the spookier most. I just always picture the basement when I look at right. that. <laughs> So the album was released on May 26, 72, produced by Jimmy Miller. And 
there's you know just a ton of brilliant musicians on this we'll get into a bit when we get into the tracks i guess charlie watts came up with the idea for the cover and wow it was a supposed to be a series of super eight stills from the stones in and around la the other images not the freak images but the other the images of the stones so they were just super eight movies shot in and around la and um, brilliant taking stills so that's the backstory here. Now, Luther, it is tradition on the Now Hear This podcast for us to head on over to a little segment that I call Paul's Bullet Corner. Good morning. I'm going to be your instructor. Okay, I know you're anxious to jump right in. Paul's Bullet Corner is where I attempt to summarize the album we're reviewing using weird poetry and i put them into three bullet points i have three for this one and my first bullet in paul's bullet corner is the sound of what a hangover feels like you know it's not active pain but it's pain you know you're gonna have to reckon with sooner or later (laughs) (laughs) yeah and it's a bit it's a bit out of focus yeah, a bit out of focus. My second bullet here, a double... Are you saying back- you've been, you've been hung over before? Is this, a, <laughs> is this news? No. But. Maybe sl- slightly hung, still hung over. Uh, right <laughs> Are you hung over now? A yeah. little. A, little. Um, a double barrel blast of linguistic nebula. Sure. Because yep. uh, I can't understand the goddamn thing he's saying. And then my last one here is taxes are just a bitch. Taxes are just bitch no doubt yeah. about it <laughs> so i think the linguistic nebula extends to actually being able to read the lyrics and you still don't understand a word he's saying you know yeah. there's some weird shit on there you know like plug in flush out and fire the fucking feed <laughs> well with that let's let's head over to track one here rocks off now this is one of my favorites on the record i think an excellent kickoff to the album Probably the strongest like cut on the whole record for me. And those horns are just the star. I love those horns. They give me big like early Ringo record kind of energy. I just Yeah. Give me horns on rock and roll songs. Probably because it's the same horn players on the Ringo record. Probably right. Jim Horn and uh Jim Horn and Bobby Keith. Yeah. It's a fantastic track. I just think it sets the tone for the record. I was actually thinking about this when I was listening to in the past couple of days that unlike most Stones openers, it would never have been a single and there's nothing really defining about it. It's not constructed in that way. It's kind of a chugger, you know, mm-hmm. it just kind of chugles along and it's constructed quarterly to to sort of just always keep you hanging a bit, you know, yes. I mean, if, if for anyone out there, it's not, you know, doesn't have to be musically inclined to realize that if you're in one, it's kind of always like rounding rounding around the five and hitting the four. It's just kind of never resolving. And when it does resolve, it's not when you expect it to resolve. And so it's kind of hanging out on a limb. There's not really a chorus, 
really. I There's mean, not really a chorus. I think the chorus yeah. is when he says, you know, and I only get my rocks off while I'm dreaming and sleeping. But even then, the it's he's singing everything on the opiates and he's being interrupted drastically by the background vocals, which just won't shut up and, <laughs> yeah. and keep getting in the way, which is like Keith and whoever's around just screaming some gobbledygook at him. And so, it, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, the whole thing is kind of a it's a piling on. Yeah. So, yeah, a great opener and a great way to kickstart the record, but not not defined in any way, like, say, the opener of, you know, the way Bitch opens side two of Sticky Fingers. There's the way Brown Sugar opens a side one, you know, or mm. any of their classic openers. It's got it all. I think it's like you like it's got the whole record in it. Yeah. yeah it's got that, the whole blurry, bleary record in it. it. But then it comes into focus with those horns. And I guess that's why I latch onto them so much, because they're really the only hook in the song is that that little thing. Yeah. The conceit of the song lyrically is basically I got all these chicks that, you know, are coming in and out of my bed, but I can only get it on when I'm sleeping, <laughs> essentially like sleeping to him. And maybe it's the product of just being this tired rock star. But all it seems like is that he just he's horny for sleep. <laughs> it just seems, seems to be the, you know, like I can't seem to stay in step because every time she that she pirouettes so she comes every time she pirouettes over me but i can only get my rocks off while i'm dreaming that's really funny you know it's kind of like this and i will say it's got this creeped out bridge yeah there, it i gets feel so that. hypnotized that just the just the sound effects on it are what's happening and then it's not in the lyric you can read online but I know that Keith is in the background in Echo saying, all these dreams of you, child. It sounds like he's saying, all these yeah. dreams of you, child. And there is all these intricacies in the song and strange sonic choices that do represent the kind of the whole record in a way. It's rocking like the whole record. It's kind of bleary like the whole record. It's sort of blurry like the whole record. And it's also, it's as unfocused as the whole record, but it all kind of contains all that in one song. Yeah. It's a ripper, though. I just can't imagine a cover band doing it. You know, one of the highlights, too, on this record, but on this track as well, Nicky Hopkins on piano. I mean, that, amazing. Yeah. The musicianship. Yeah, it's him on this one. So it's just like, no matter what, and I don't mean to come down like lukewarm or hard on this record. I'm not trying to do that at all. But even in the places that I don't find this record to be particularly listenable, the musicianship is just top notch. Like, there's no denying. Oh, yeah. And Rocksoft does have this amazing telecaster twangy thing to it that they're, they, I mean, just him and Keith and Mick or, or Mick Taylor, just, they're just shredding on this song. Like, there's just incredible, like, Nashville style telecaster ripping, like yeah. low, low note chugging. And I mean, I, the more I talk about it and think about it, there's a lot going on there. It's splattered on a dusty road. There's a great line. There's yeah. nothing but killer lines splattered all over the song and all right. over the album you know it's just that they are not in any particular order or sequence <laughs> you know it is it is kind of a cut up record it does look like the art yeah well that takes a hard left into track two here rip this joint which if you were getting a cuss because Rocksoft doesn't really sound that divergent from other stones tracks like you, okay i'm getting a stones album Rocksoft. that's kind of catchy a little you know and then you get Rip This Joint, track two, which is just a glorified boogie-woogie jam that yeah. you 
I don't think I can pick out a single lyric from At a certain point, I go, oh, that's what this record is? Like, it's just, I feel like Rip This Joint is more representative of the record than Rocks Off is because Rip This Joint is just sort of an odd choice. Well, it's also the closest they ever came in their later period to doing stuff like their early shit. I mean, Round and Around and all the Chuck Berry stuff that they did with Brian Jones, all that really fast and chugging stuff is Rip This Joint is gloriously representing you know, it's got good early Stones energy in it. Yeah, it's kind of the closest they come in this stage of their career to Rockabilly. And I think it's one yeah. of the fastest paced songs in their entire catalog. Absolutely. It's kind of their version of Thrash. Right. Yeah. Or Psychobilly, they call it these days. Psychobilly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. There's also a surge of 50s nostalgia happening in the early 70s, too. And so you have to think maybe that was kind of in the air for this. You know, we're just, Absolutely. We're just pre-happy days. We're just, you know, Lennon's about to go into the studio and cut rock and roll for the... Yeah, and Shauna and all that stuff. The 50s thing was, it was hip to be into the 50s. And if you look at the iconography all over the record, there's a lot of 50s iconography with jukeboxes and different yeah. things. And they're, they're obviously embracing that. There's also that line in it, um, Mr. President, Mr. Immigration Man, let me in, sweetie, to your fair land, <laughs> which is kind of like a little bit of their, you know, wandering gypsy thing that they're exiles and yeah. they're, you know, can they get in? And that's sort of an echo of what Lennon's going through, too, with trying sure. to get into the States. And there's a lot of mentions of cities. You know, it's, I like how they call out Tampa and it and Santa Fe and San Jose. And yeah. they seem to know the U.S. pretty well by this point. They've toured it since the mid-60s and they've been down in Texas and they they really do know. And apparently they know the Butter Queen. So we won't get into that. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's, let's choose that as a segue to track three here. Shake your hips. Again, for me personally, as a listening experience, this one just kind of continues the rip this joint. What the hell is this of it all? Especially when I was listening to it for the first time years ago and, and re-listening to it again here, I'm just like, what an odd choice. Cause it just, it's mostly just ambiance, really. This one and rip this joint to me. I mean, they're not really songs. I guess they are, but they're more, they just sound sort of like jams that. Yeah, I mean, it's Memphis Slim, I think. I mean, it's, they're in a blues hypnosis vibe. Yeah. Which you can argue that the Stones do very, very well. I mean, 
it's like the Zeppelin thing. Their takes on the blues were not about cop. That's a lot of the criticism they got at the time was that they were ripping off or copying the blues. And they were not doing that. They were reimagining it mm. in a kind of post way, you know, kind of a meta way. They were the first probably generation to think, don't just listen to this for the musicianship and the tune and all. Listen to it for the ambiance. Yeah. Listen to the vibe on this record. And I think that was them trying to catch a vibe and mm-hmm. doing a pretty fucking good job of it. But at the end of the day, they're covering Memphis Slim and it's a great cover. It was probably also a signifier because they're like, they're constantly boasting through their music how much they knew about the blues. Right. Yeah. You know, it was a, it was kind of a, not a known song. So I, I, it makes sense to me. I mean, things like that and the Robert Johnson stuff, it feels like of a piece. It's, it's just continuing that blues hypnosis, which. Yeah. Which feels good. Like you said, you put it on at a party and it makes it starts to make a lot of sense. It's yes, exactly. Exactly. And so I mean, yeah, like you said, this is a this is a cover of, you know, the song Shake Your Hips, also known as the Hip Shake, which was written by um bluesman Slim Harpo, as you mentioned. I'm sorry, Slim Harpo. I Slim said Harpo. Slim. My bad. Oh, My bad. Slim. So yeah, I mean I guess it was Mick's idea to include this cover. And this is one of the f- uh, handful of tracks that were started before the exile sort of period which <laughs> oh wow wound up getting them into a bit of trouble with abco later on not in this case because you know it's a cover so the publishing isn't quite so precious but um you know as we know they continued to deal with alan klein struggles throughout the 70s and, and by the way speaking of alan klein now you're making me think could that be part of why it's a double album Sort of just contractually speaking, like Maybe. get the hell out. But I think I'm doing a good job. I love the drumming and hip shake, and and it's just where he's popping in the snare. And I and and in general, Charlie is just he's doing that a lot. He's it's like where he puts those crashes on on rocks off. It's like there's always this beautiful release with everything that he does, and and I think that continues into through to where we are in the in the record. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Charlie's on fire throughout this whole thing. I He's mean, on fire. In in fact, I called out on this track four here, Casino Boogie, that Charlie's drumming was the highlight for me, along with Bobby's horns. When he, when he kind of crashes in towards the end and he yeah, yeah. It's, it's another example of like Charlie steals these moments there's that one track later I think it's Shine a Light or something it's not him but even Jimmy Miller whenever he plays drums as a stand-in for Charlie you can only do a Charlie yeah Casino Boogie is one of my favorites this is a highlight for me and I think the lyrics are just insane i i mean they're a cut-up technique completely but like you said so i guess mick just wrote a bunch of phrases on scraps of paper ripped them up mixed them all around and then <laughs> came up with the lyrics of this song which is which is cool and i guess the band was reading them out is what something i read too which is they read them out loud and then they and he kept an exact order that they read them out i wish i could hear them a little more clearly <laughs> Again, I was like, oh, but I'd, I'd give anything to be a fly on the wall when they were doing this <laughs> casino boogie. When Charlie was like, 
kissing cunts in cans. <laughs> <laughs> or Bill was like, left shoe shuffle, right shoe muffle. Oh my God. It's good. <laughs> those, those silly stones. To me, this song has the best single phrase of Exile Main Street, which is thrill freak Uncle Sam. <laughs> because that's what they could have called this record, I think. Mm. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah, it's also got a great guitar solo from Mick Taylor. Uh, oh my god, it's really nice, incredible. Yeah, Mick Mick Taylor's just on fire on this record. Let's face it. Yeah, and he's allowed the room to be on fire. Yeah, he was interesting because he's a later addition to the Stones, and so he actually didn't have the same tax problems that the rest of the band had. He just had to kind of go along with it. Oh wow. And so, yeah, it was. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Must have been a bit, a bit annoying. <laughs> yeah, totally. I mean, in fact, uh, as evidenced by, I mean, he didn't last too long after this record. Well, he did another record or two, and that's it. So that leads us to track five here, the lead-off single for the album, "Tumbling Dice." <laughs> So Mick got the bulk of this song, or at least the idea behind the track, from Keith's housekeeper, who liked to gamble and play dice. In, really? Uh, yeah, in the streets. And so that's kind of where this came from. Although the track's original title was apparently uh, Good Time Women, which you can't hear Mick say toward the end of the track. And I guess this is one of the Sticky Fingers holdovers. It was sort of started there and then wound up being dusted oh, wow. off and used for this one and so this is a highlight for me i mean i like this because there's a solid co- again my pop is sort of showing here but there's like an, a recognizable chorus i can kind of understand mick the production is a little cleaner again some truly excellent playing i think this is one of those tracks that could have fit on one of those cleaner sounding records like a let it bleed or something like it could have it still for me would have been weirdly like it's just doesn't have the punch of a brown sugar or bitch it doesn't have that yeah but it's a special track and charlie once again steals the show at the end when each they're just sort of building at the end and building and building and when he finally lets go i mean you never get tired of hearing the ending of this song and the riff is vintage keith everything's right about the track um yeah. not particularly you know if you told me it was a single great not a single great to me it's just a great exile track yeah not a lot of pull-out singles from this record, actually. No, I mean, I, I can't even imagine what, you know, I know, I guess Happy was a single or something, and I don't know, maybe all down the line, but nothing stands out to me as being, you know, the ultimate single on this right. record. And, you know, Tumbling Dice, I guess, makes sense, and I guess there's that. I don't know if you've seen Cocksucker Blues, the movie that Robert Frank made that was never released. It still isn't released. No, although I've heard about it. It's legendary from what I understand. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you can, you can, it's on YouTube now, I'm sure. And it has the feel of the album. And there's a lot of stupid pranks and hijinks that I think they're mainly recreating for the camera at that point. But 
Um, there's a scene where they're throwing on tumbling dice and checking it out because I guess the single's being released. Maybe they're listening to an acetate, and it's kind of like, wow, you know, they're in some hotel room listening to the acetate of tumbling dice, and you think, wow, that's a moment in time. That's the specialness of the song can be felt. Yeah, yeah, for sure. It's a yeah, it's a rambling, gambling song. It's um, <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I don't put it up particularly on a pedestal of any kind for a stone song. I'll pick. It's not one of my favorite Stone singles. Let's put it that way. It's yeah. just a great. It's a great Stone single. Yeah, it's a it's a highlight for me on the record again because I'm my ears looking for something. Clear. I feel like you know I'm like <laughs> I'm in a dense fog and I'm just sort of like it, w- the instant I can pick out a Give shape, me a hug. I'm like heading Give me a hug. <laughs> heading toward yeah. <laughs> Which brings us to track six here, Sweet Virginia. You know, I, I, there's a certain point where I don't have much to say about these tracks, but like this one's nice. I like the mandolin at the top. You know, it's a nice little touch to differentiate it. Again, I'm still in a lull here. This one feels a little undercooked to me. There are moments that have this kind of Sweet Virginia feel later in the record that I think are a bit, maybe a bit more successful than this one. But uh, I guess this one was another Sticky Fingers holdover, and it was began at Olympic before the French Exodus, so... There's a few of these tracks which were kicking around for quite a while. What I dig about this, we're on side two now. What I dig about this side is, is I like, it's kind of their acoustic side to the record. Yeah. And so I kind of love that. I've, the Stones have always been great about that, where you flip the side, it's a completely different thing, like in Tattoo You and stuff like that. I like the conceit of the country rock side to the record. Yeah. I would kind of hate the record without it, but like you said, if you dig into it, it doesn't necessarily hold up like once you get in the weeds on it, but it works as a side, yeah. what I would say. Oh, um, sure. There are some great, this is a great lyric though, wading through the waste of the stormy winter and I got a desert in my toenail and I hid the speed inside my shoe and just classic Mick Stone shit. Is yeah. in there. Stop the waves behind your eyeballs. There's your hangover theory. This is, this is the this is the the hangover song. Yeah. If well, this album is a hangover, this is the the title track to that hangover. Uh, right. <laughs> <laughs> well, the hangover continues to track seven here, torn and frayed. I guess this track is about a rambling musician, a vagabond whose clothes are coming apart at the seam. And, you know, some pretty guitar on this one. Again, we get that beautiful piano, that Nicky Hopkins piano. It's really, really nice. But uh, again, 
other than that, and, and I guess the pedal steel too is what I like. I really like that. And that was played by one of Graham Parsons' compatriots, a guy named Al Perkins, played the pedal steel on this track. Beautiful so pedal steel solo. Yeah. There's there's stuff I really like about it, but again, I'm not I'm still in the fog on this one. I'm still in the hangover on this one. And so it's like more about the ambiance. It's more of the songs are less songs and they're more just textures almost. Like they're painting this canvas of this mood. And yeah, so, this yeah. sort of waste wasted, decadent sort of mood. And the Stones always had great titles. Torn and Frayed mm. is a great title. I see this as a little bit of an influence by Graham and also kind of a dig at him. Like Paris, <laughs> uh, the whole thing about dressing rooms filled with parasites. <laughs> Who's going to help him to kick it and let him follow you down? You know, that like he's kind of the sense that it's about him. Like you said, it's about a musician and he's kind of following him around and he's a parasite. And yeah, I kind of I kind of read it a little bit as like through every nook and cranny, this guy's kind of hanging on and mix maybe viewing Keith is too wasted to notice that the guy doesn't have to be there. Maybe he's also feels a little threatened by him, kind of like the the classic Paul threatened by John, uh, right. threatened by someone on John kind of thing and all that, you know, right, that right. when someone ever became between Lennon McCartney, yeah. um, whether it be a Yoko or just another musician, Stu, yeah. Stu even. And I yeah. think this is that kind of a version of that, you know, a little bit. Yeah. Well, that actually makes me appreciate the song a little bit more. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, I might listen to it with fresh ears without in mind. Well, speaking of Beatles, this next track has kind of a Beatle connection. Sweet. Black Angel, track eight. Got a sweet black angel, got a pin of good. Got a sweet black angel, I'm a form of my work. Well, she ain't no singer, she ain't no star. But she showed off the good, and she moved so fast. But you got anything. I guess this song is about Angela Davis, who was the political activist whose husband, right, took a courtroom hostage and the judge got killed. And I am no expert on this story, but there was some horrible tragedy where there was hostages and all this and that. And I guess Angela was implicated as being sort of an accomplice to this. And there was a big move from the pop world at the time to kind of draw attention to her story and show that show free Angela Davis. And yeah, she was, she she was a big figure in the black power movement and uh, still I think continues to be, I think she has some sort of relation to, I could be way off to Tupac Shakur. Oh really? Um, I think she was maybe friends with his, parents or there was some relation there um yeah. i could be getting a mix up and one could take this song in this era this song is canceled basically <laughs> uh, essentially it's, it's it's the stones have been canceled this is the gonna but but of course you cannot you have to you have to take the song as it is meant in its yeah. time which is very pro the movement very pro her and yeah. in their own way showing their solidarity with what they perceive to be as a, a put upon and downtrodden figure and the downtrodden movement. Right. At the same time, they can't help but be Rolling Stones that they're talking about. They kind of <laughs> talking about how she's kind of a pinup girl and yeah. she's hot. You know, it's like, <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's like, you know, there's a sweet black angel and, 
Yeah. But what, as always with Jag and Richards, you know what they're trying to say. Yeah, I don't think this is cancelable, really. I mean, no, no, no I, I'm, I'm being facetious. I'm just saying. No, I know. I, yeah, take it I, out of its era and it's instant. Yeah, I guess. I, I guess. I would say that Lennon's. So that's the Beatle connection. So on John and Yoko's "Sometime in New York City," there's a song Angela, and it's about the same thing. And theirs is a baby, a bit more direct. They were sort of recounting the story and in that very uh, anthemic John Lennon 1972 way. Yeah. But no, I think this, I mean, yeah, the, this, this, the, the pinup thing is kind of funny. Well, I just mean the phony, <laughs> the, the phony patois, the, the N word, you know, everything about it is just right. not, it's not relatable today in its approach. But that again, we're talking about 50 years ago. See, you have to keep in mind. I couldn't even hear the lyrics clear enough to tell you about some of that stuff. Yeah. So I it's, it, it's even like that online. I mean, it's sort of like, well, degal in danger, degal in chains, you know, it's right. done in this patois, but that's, that's a Mick conceit. He's done that on many other songs. And if you think this is not coming from any other place, but empathy, you've got your, you got it all wrong. Yeah. The, yeah. the Stones were great songwriters simply because they had the empathy to be great songwriters. I think they stand out too amongst those who may be accused of sort of fetishizing the black music world. Like Led Zeppelin gets a lot of flack these days for appropriation. And, you know, you could give the Stones that same flack. But I think one of the things that they did that maybe Led Zeppelin didn't do is give a platform to some of these artists like they famously you know brought howlin wolf out and so like in in the early 60s and stuff like these musicians that would have maybe not been forgotten about but certainly weren't in the mainstream in the way that the rolling stones were and so i think that they were at the heart of it all fans of black fans of black culture and it's one of the things i admire about him because it could really be viewed as appropriation maybe it is to an extent but I think they were just, they were into black culture, I think, in the same way that George was into Indian culture, really, is that they they felt the kinship. Yeah, that's a great point. And you have to see how did their black peers at the time consider them? They considered them, in many cases, Jack was considered black. I mean, in in many ways, they, they were respected. They were immersed Again, they identified with the downtrodden and the and the underground, and and this is part of that. This is part of that tapestry. So that brings us to track nine here, "Loving Cup." Now, this song I knew, and this song I loved because, as I mentioned, I'm a big White Stripes fan, and in the documentary "Shine a Light," which takes its name from the song on this record of the same name, there's a couple special guests that come out to do numbers, and Christina Aguilera comes out to do "Live with Me." And Jack White comes out to do Loving Cup. Oh, that's Stones. right, huh? And so that version I was very familiar with. <laughs> I'm the man on the mountain that says, come on up. I'm the plowman in the valley with the face full of mud. Oh, 
now this is one of these songs on this record that actually to me sounds like a song. <laughs> like there's a hooky, memorable tune. I can kind of understand the lyrics. No, no, you can. The, the lyrics are very clear. Uh, this is probably the most clear lyric on the record where you yeah. go to look it up and you're like, oh, that's what I thought it was. Right, right. Yeah, and the, the production's kind of cleaner. It, I don't know, this one is one of the highlights for me just on a listenability level. Like, okay, I'll come back to this song. Definitely. I'll come back to this one. Same as I'm coming back to rocks off these kind of tracks. So this is a big, big highlight for me. And, um, just really beautiful descending licks throughout the track. In fact, the descending licks on this whole record are really good, but yeah. And it has, a, it's kind of related to salt of the earth and those kind of jams by the stones. It's kind of like, I'm the plowman in the valley with a face full of mud and kind of relating to the everyman. But of course it always leads to sex. Yeah. Right. With the stones. Like no, all roads lead to sex with the stones. It doesn't matter with like, <laughs> I'll join your union, but so I can get laid, you know, right, right. Always, <laughs> it's like, you know, but I love all that shit about what a beautiful buzz and what a beautiful buzz. You know, yeah. See your face dancing in the flame. There's just, it's poetic, man. It's beautiful. It's, yeah. this is nobody else can do this whatever this is there's not a single artist or band that can create a track like this and i'm including all the stones in it i mean this is just the perfect example of the pure magic that happens between those guys when it's firing on all cylinders yeah in fact this would have been a great single yeah there's a promo of them doing it and it's almost as if it maybe was a single in europe or somewhere but <laughs> to promote the tour i think if you go on youtube and you can see them kind of half jam it's like it's obviously to a pre-recorded track because nikki is in there but i think mix may be singing it live but they're sort of like in uh, montreux or somewhere and they're performing it and it feels like a single it does it surprised me that it wasn't That brings us to the second single and this and I think the final single. I think there were only two singles on the record, which you mentioned earlier, track ten, Happy. And I guess Keith cut this track himself or recorded it himself because no one else was around to operate the machinery at the time. I guess he oh, right, right, it right, sort of come right. to and just kind of put it down. The thing I like most about this track is how the guitars echo the horn sound of the rest of the record, those descending horn licks throughout it. The guitars kind of give me a bit of that. And again, this is one of those that kind of sounds like a song to me. And so it's a highlight on the record. Yeah, it's a single. And it's, it's just, we should tell the listeners who aren't familiar that it does kick off side three. It kicks off the second record of Exile. Yeah. So you're back up. Keith's leading the way. And it's one of those songs in the slim but great pantheon of Keith 
sung tunes of the stones like you got the silver and uh before they make me run and yeah it's just like so when you're growing up with the stones in my case you're like oh yeah it's the one that keith sings and it, <laughs> it's it's odd that it's it must be the only stone single that keith sang i'm sure oh I'm yeah positive mm-hmm. it is. um that, and yeah. probably doomed from the start because of that reason you know in a way like not gonna be a big hit because of that but it kind of epitomizes keith and his whole outlook you know as most of the tunes he sings does right you know growing up keith was it's kind of like the lennon mccartney thing you know uh, mccartney always took the flack he wasn't reappreciated to later i do believe that and i don't even know if it's happened yet the jagger's been appreciated to the level he should be i think that's kind of next i unfortunately i think it's going to take him maybe dying or something but the understanding growing up was man keith is the stones that you'd hear, you know, everyone's older brother would say, everyone's like, hey, Keith, <laughs> Keith is the Stones, man. You know, and then I get it. He drove the Stones. He's the spirit animal of the Stones. But the truth is that Mick Jagger is every bit as much a Stones and also is the poet of the Stones. Let's mm-hmm. face it. He wrote all the words. He didn't get as fucked up when Keith, you know, he, he kind of kept, kept the thing going. Right. Kind of much like Paul towards the end of the Beatles, only it just kept going and going and going. <laughs> you know, an- imagine Paul keeping the Beatles going another 10 years. Amazing to think about. It, yeah. While John was still on heroin. Right. That's kind of Jagger. And I really hope that Jagger gets, I, I know I get it. He's a rock star. Everyone, you know, it's not like he hasn't had a great life, but as an artist, I'm not so sure that Jagger's appreciated. Um, as much as Keith is. We were talking about Ram and, you know, suddenly everybody woke up and decided Ram was brilliant. And, you know, even tracks like Temporary Secretary were suddenly, oh, that track. Yeah. And that track is thought of as brilliant. So I think Mick will have his day. And, you know, it comes and goes, I think, with these things. There was that, you know, that Moves Like Jagger song from a few years back. So there's a bit of mythology even amongst, you know, sure. millennials and things like that. So... Yeah, but he's yeah. known for you know he's known for being the ultimate sort of dancing frontman yeah. and what, and and willing you know it's sort of like there was a I can't remember who said it maybe it was the boss it was like Dylan for you know Jagger freed your body and Dylan freed your mind that was that whole thing sure but the thing is that Jagger was capable of lyrical greatness like Wild Horses and things like that and so I think a lot of that does come out on this record you know yeah I think it's a, a lot of hype you know I think I like. Honky Tonk Woman, and uh, I think Mick's a joke, you know, with all that f- dancing. And I always did. I enjoy him, you know. I mean, I, I'm going to see his films and all that. Everybody else. But anyway, we're talking about Keith, and yeah, Keith's well, got his his themes on here. <laughs> <laughs> so starting with Loving Cup, that's when the album picks up for me. Like, I take everything after Loving Cup. I don't think I'd cut a single track after that. So this is where I'm starting to come in. And Turd on the Run, you know, when I saw that title. I was like, what is this song even going to be? But I got to say, of the blues shuffles on this album, this is my favorite. Actually, I didn't even realize till reading the lyrics. It is a hilarious song. Yeah. 
So let's can, can I just read? Can, oh, I, I, was, can I just read? Some? You read my mind. I pulled the exact same thing. So you go, you go. I want to hear it. Grabbed hold of your coattail, but it came off in my hand. I reached for your lapel, but it weren't sewn on so grand. <laughs> Begged, promised anything. If only you would stay. Well, I lost a lot of love over you. He goes on to be, do this whole conceit of like hanging onto your pants, but they ripped off in my hands. Basically, he's just like literally trying to grab onto someone and they keep tearing away. It's hilarious. <laughs> Yeah. Diamond rings, Vaseline, you give me disease. Well, I lost a lot of lover over you. I, I think hope. I lost. It might be I lost a lot of lovers over you or I lost a lot of. I hear I lost a lot of love over you. Oh, okay. Yeah. But it's just like only Jagger could. He, Jagger's very funny when he wants to be. You know, yeah. it's like faraway eyes. He's hysterical. You know, the Stones had a lot of humor and I think it's in this. The look at the title. Yeah. Turd on the run. I mean, or you could see Jagger writing this and then Keith, go, you know, what should we call it? Give me Keith going, call it Turd on the run. <laughs> well, like I mentioned, you know, the, I'm in a stretch here where all of these tracks are really hit me. So Ventilator Blues track 12, I think I mentioned at the top, that was the one that I took to heart when I first heard it. the interesting things i read online was that charlie watts says that the band rehearses for tour with ventilator blues or when they're warming up that's what's one of the songs that they always play because it is kind of like to me that sounds like the stones it's the baseline rolling stones to me it's ventilator blues yeah and and mick taylor gets a little credit on this one yes the, the rare writing credit which tells me that if jagger richards are actually their miserly asses are just like relenting and giving Mick Taylor of what is probably a much deserved writing credit. He probably had a major hand in the song, a major yeah. hand. It'd be like, you know, Lennon McCartney giving George a writing credit or something. Right. And so, yeah, there's a line in here. Where is it? Oh yeah. Messed by cheating. Ain't gonna ever learn. I always thought the line growing up, I thought it was like, Something about your elbowed loins. <laughs> that's what I, something in your elbowed loins. I thought that was brilliant, but it, it, I don't think that's what he's saying. But yeah, it's a ripper. I actually, Dylan called it out. Dylan, in this last interview he gave for Rough and Rowdy Ways, he mentioned his three favorite Stone songs, and they were my three favorite Stone songs. They were literally oh, yeah. Wild Horses, Ventilator Blues, and Angie. Huh. I read that and went, oh, my God, I think I would pick the same three. It's just <laughs> this is a towering tune. Yeah, it sounds it's almost like, like a slowed down. You can't catch me a little that I'm almost thinking Bible motor and uh, yeah, 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 way yeah. you know, it's got that Chuck Berry on it. Totally. It's you can't catch me on on a heavy dose of smack for sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh but it's it's a steamer it's a scorcher it's the stones doing that thing that only they could do yeah, yeah. you know well, it's just got this sludgy just iron fist of a rock and roll spirit to it yes it's great it's just great which brings us to a track that dabbles in a bit of almost religious-y kind of gospel sounding stuff i just want to see his face hey! 
I didn't know this, but apparently Billy Preston was present during the Sunset Sound stage of this record, although he's not playing on this. Apparently, it was a guy named Bobby Whitlock. Bobby Whitlock, yeah, from Derek and the Dominoes. He, right, who's funny. He's still a Beatle, you know, a guy related to the to the scene. Yeah. But apparently he wrote it. I was just reading this because I was like, what's the deal with that track? Because it's always been this sort of haunted kind of mystery. Um, But he apparently was like, Mick just knew he's from the South and said, hey, they were fucking around at Sunset Sound. He said, hey, show me some of that gospel stuff. And he messed around and he did not know they were recording. (laughs) And he left and someone said, check it out. You're on the record. You know, like there's the record. (laughs) And he thought, wow. But then he was surprised to not see himself credited. Oh, yeah. Well, because they did that classic thing that the well, Stones he, will do. Uh, he claimed, I guess Mick Jagger claimed that it was a jam primarily between Charlie Watts and Mick Taylor. And Amazing. that's how he says he remembers it. So who knows? Um, you know, they were all doing a lot at the time, and I'm sure there were people floating in and out, and not everything was remembered exactly. Oh, exactly. I, I yeah, yeah, this is the 70s. <laughs> if you were there, but. Tom Waits, I just remember him talking about this track a lot, and it makes a lot of sense because I, I think he was pretty fascinated with this track, and I think it it helped inform the later, you know, Renaissance period of his music in the '80s, where things got where he got out of the sort of singer songwriter balladeer thing of the '70s. I think the ambiance of this track yes. really made him think twice. That and Captain Beefheart and things like that, and Kurt Vile and all that. But I think this was a very important pivotal track for Tom Waits to just kind of steering his music towards a vibe. This is one of the spots where the vibe works for me on the record, even though it's a little rambly, even though it goes on a little too long, and even though it's not really a track, same as my complaints with the other ones for me, for whatever reason, I don't know if I can quite put a finger on it. It it's placed at such a spot in the record, you know, between ventilator blues and let it loose that it's just like, I can get into it. To me, this one is like a track. It's a great track three on a record or something like that. You know, that yeah, that yeah really yeah. crucial spot where you've got the hit at the beginning and then you got the final. It's kind of the ram on. You know, yeah. it's hard to imagine the record without this kind of vibe. I mean, the second you take off the blurry stuff like this, you, again, things just get too defined. It just ceases to be Exile Main Street. You know, when you take off this and take off Turd on the Run and take off Casino Boogie and all those things that those all those hypnotic things are kind of what makes this record stand out in their discography or anyone's discography. It's it's yeah. just great. Then we get to a Beatly sounding track, Let It Loose. Now this That's true, huh? <laughs> this one's got those jangly Beatle guitars up top there. loving all these tracks on the back of this record i think it's incredibly well sequenced you're poised for a song like this after all of that uh after all you've been through you're poised like a song like this and i guess a portion of the lyrics were lifted from man of constant sorrow that 
folk song. Oh, really? Yeah, which is interesting. Oh, for Let It Loose. Yeah. What's interesting about this song is, yeah, so you have the Leslie guitar. It's kind of very Let It Be-ish. Um, you've got Preston all over it, I think. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure there's some pretty preston the organ on it. Everything seems to be put through the Leslie on this song. You've got mm. the vocals going through the Leslie. You've got the guitar going through Leslie, the organ going through Leslie. So there's this sort of like filtered vibe to this song. And it's also a very circuitous song. It's a very circuitous. There's a guitar pattern on it that keeps going round and round. And I find it fascinating that Jagger found a way to kind of paint a lyrical picture around this. Essentially, it's a sequence. It's a chord mm-hmm. sequence. It doesn't have a defined verse chorus kind of thing. And Like most of the tracks on this record. <laughs> but it's also very like, it's a bit like a spiritual. It's all let it all come down, um, let it loose. I like this line and I'm hip to what she'll do. Give her just about a month or two. <laughs> And then there's another thing to this. So the lyrics are very, very, they seem very personal. Like, mm-hmm. who's that woman on your arm? You know, I'm hip to what she's going to do. Maybe he's even talking to Keith or whatever. He's someone he doesn't trust. But what's interesting is that this sort of background Greek chorus that is repeating everything throughout the song that he says, and even if it's a very sort of personal or obscure thing like when he says give her just about a month or two that was like just about a month or two just about right. a month or two so yeah there's a constant sort of wheel going around Churn, and around yeah. in this you know churning yeah exactly yeah it's one of those few spots where they're using the vocal as an instrument yeah yeah no you're right i mean i think that if your mind is trying to latch on to where the pop is on the record just like any stones album you'll get it not yeah. not so much talking about the earlier pop years where they're literally doing pop, like let's spend the night together. But in the classic Stones era, they're always just enough pop. Yeah. To keep a guy like you for his <laughs> hooks. You know, like a crawling junkie. Yeah. Well, look, I love the weird. You know, I'm a big fan of weird and I love my Brian Eno and all that stuff. And so it's not that I'm. Um, rigid in that sense i guess not knowing there's so much mystique built up around this record and there's so much legend built up around it that coming into it fairly cold not knowing what to expect yeah and then getting this was more just like a shock to the system yeah than anything else i say the pop stuff because like when i'm listening to i'm like well where are the songs (laughs) No, but you know what? No, I, I, but I, I'm saying that from a place of totally understanding. But it's now it's it's very interesting because you and I came to this album two completely different ways. We weren't in the first wave, like my dad or your yeah. dad. I was in the wave of like when it started to get when it wasn't really appreciated and it started to get appreciated. Whereas you're coming in after it's already been, you've been told a billion times how great it is. You better like it or you're an idiot. for not like <laughs> thinking this is a masterpiece. Whereas I'm coming in going like, you're kind of an idiot for liking it. This isn't as great as their golden moments. It's in this like period where they started to wane in the early seventies. Like, and then people going, no, wait, hold on a minute. Actually Rolling Stone says it's the one of the yeah. top, records of all time and so we're coming at it from two different angles which which is pretty interesting because neither angle is really wrong they're just where you happen to be in a place and time with it and in yours angle is a pretty fascinating one because you're coming at it from an angle of like okay you've told me this is great i pretty sure i know what's great because i listen to a lot of great pop i listen (laughs) well no i mean you, you know you listen a lot of great rock and roll and pop and everything 
now I'm just going to take it for what it is. Right. So what I did last night, I, I had actually had a ball. I mean, I got, I, 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 we were joking about being hungover earlier, but basically I just had, a, <laughs> I basically tried to put myself in the Stones place. So I had a bunch of whiskey and I put on this record and I just tried to get into the Stones headspace. When you say you had a bunch of whiskey, can, can we get more specific? Like what kind and how much? Oh, the cheap stuff, you know. Okay. okay. And you, but, but you, did you get, you, you're saying you got a beautiful buzz. I did, yeah, and and that's why I was saying, like, yeah, this this album belongs on at a bar because, yeah, when you're a little hazy, you've had a couple, you, it's like, yeah, okay, I get this rock and roll, you know, like, yeah, 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 it's it's one I would put on, taken in its totality, it really is more of just like a, like I was saying, it's like a soundtrack to some experience, sure, um, and I think that just falls on the fact that there really aren't that many actual songs on this album no no i i think you're right i think i think you're right it has to be taken it's almost like take me as i am it has to be taken as this whole or as the soundtrack to a road trip or the soundtrack to a night out right right brings us to uh track 15 all down the line another sticky fingers holdover though i guess at the time it was an acoustic number this one oh wow okay Again, in the uh, tradition of their salt of the earth, I'm just one of the workers on the railroad. Um, <laughs> you know, it's all heard the diesel drumming all down the line, you know, like right. bust another bottle. I'm just a regular Joe in a bar kind of stone songs. Yeah, again, they got me on this one, you know. they've By this point in the record, I'm, I'm kind of sold on what, they, what they're trying to sell me. So, yeah, no, I, I like this one a lot. I mentioned that it was a Sticky Fingers holdover. I guess this was one of those tracks that Alan Klein called out to sue the Rolling Stones for breach of settlement because All Down the Line and four other tracks on this album were composed while Mick and Keith were under contract with Abco. And so, yeah, it's just a whole big mess. Just a real... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so he got rights on this probably on on these four songs. Yeah, he acquired the publishing rights. Yep. This could have been I think this is every bit a contender for a single. Yes. More than most tracks. This this could have been the single. It's uh it's got a big, you know, sort of climax to it and when he says I need a shot of salvation once in a while and all that. Um yeah. and it's got that ripping slide solo and this is who you want the band to be. Yes. And they play this a lot live. Yeah. It seems a lot of these made their way into their live sets, a lot of these tracks, which is cool. You know, I mean, when you see the Stones live, that's what you're you're going to see, the ambiance that they're presenting on this record. You know, they're selling you their image, right? So, I mean, I wish that's what, you know, they're this touring act that is this sort of, you know, legacy act now. And one time, a few years ago, they did, when it was the 40th anniversary, oh, I don't know when it was, but they did Sticky Fingers live. They did the oh, whole yeah. record. 
Uh-huh. And um, to me, it seems like that's what they should do when they go out is just do their records live. Like if they did an exile Main Street, show, I mean, that would if they want to keep making the kind of bread they're used to making, they would do that because there's not a single soul that wouldn't go see that. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of legacy acts kind of do that these days. I mean, the aforementioned Brian Wilson did that. And I think he did that with not just the smile stuff, but pet sounds and. Yeah, a lot of people do choose to do that. But I guess the Stones kind of went the way of McCartney in some way in the sense that it's uh, it's more of a victory lap or <laughs> than anything else. It's like I, w- I heard it described, McCartney shows specifically, as a Disney ride version of the Beatles or something like <laughs> <laughs> it's almost I, I could see that but i'll ta- i'll i would happily go on that ride absolutely yeah i mean look i i've seen him countless times and i get what they're saying but i'll also say this when he busts out the lighters and you just the women just the men i'm singing all hey jude with them you know so it's like yeah i think there's absolutely. some there's a value to that and the stones are in an advantageous place where that they are still together they are still talking to each other they are still make a music in some instances and whereas McCartney oh, absolutely. Is- that's kind of an amazing thing you know i mean we we take them for granted because they're still around but if you go see the stones live you can hear charlie playing with keith playing with mick playing with, you know it's it's kind of an amazing thing and yeah. yeah man i mean again i'll i'll take that ride i'll you know i don't know yeah. about the stones disney ride but <laughs> what, what, just on a quick side note what was the best time you saw mccartney there are two memories that stand out. One was at Giant Stadium on the New World Tour. I was eight. and What year was that? 93. And oh, you saw that? Oh, wow. He still had a... He could really sing still then. I just adored Live and Let Die, and I remember when Lady Madonna came on, I knew because of my family, his set list, and I knew that Lady Madonna always came before Live and Let Die, and so when Lady Madonna came on, I was so excited, again, eight years old, that I uh, I wound up dancing on the chair and tumbling backwards into a couple, uh, into, to some people behind me, and they just thought it was the, the cutest thing, it was beer and everything everywhere, but I was so excited. So that was great, and then... The closest I've ever been was at the Garden on his tour in 2005. I saw that tour. That was... With the blue shirt. Yeah. The blue shirt. Right. (laughs) And he did uh, too many people for the first time on that tour. And I... He was doing Ram stuff, right? On that, yeah. Yeah, and I purposefully didn't look at the set list, and so when too many people... When he started playing too many people, I lost Yeah, piece of cake, yeah. I was like, are you kidding me? And then he goes, this is for the Wings fans. I'm like, that's not a Wings album, but fine. Oh, my God. Uh, so yeah, those those two stand out. And then I was at the Dodger Stadium show with with, with uh, <laughs> when you got to correct Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> I was at the Dodger Stadium show in 2019 when oh. Ringo, when Ringo came out. And Holy was, shit! Yeah, and I was also at Ringo's 70th birthday party when when Paul came out. So I've seen oh Paul and Ringo God. play together twice, and so that's those heavy. two. 
those two stand out, you know. That's a big deal. That's a I, no matter how which side you come down on, that's a big deal. Wow, cool. Anyway, uh, so stop breaking down this track sixteen. Now I'm very, very, very versed in this track because it is a cover, Robert Johnson song. But the White Stripes covered "Stop Breaking Down" on their debut, eponymous debut album, and so I was acutely aware of this track. I guess Jack, his favorite Stones album was Beggar's Banquet, and he hadn't really done too much of the dive in his early 20s when he recorded that album. So he didn't actually realize that the Stones had recorded a version of Stop Breaking Down when he right, did it. Right. But they're interesting takes on it, because the Stones kind of turned it into like this railway, you know, the harmonicas. on, And Jack took it in a very different... Jack took kind of made it a Led Zeppelin-sounding version. <laughs> It's a malleable tune. It's a Rojo tune. It's, uh, you know, Robert Johnson. My old band, the Freewheelers, used to cover this. It shows a lot. In fact, we cut it for our second record back oh, in wow. the 90s, and uh, which I always forget about. We didn't end up putting it on, but probably influenced by the Stones version of it but you know i guess the, so how many i don't know how many robert johnson tunes they've done but we know this and love in vain yeah their blues covers i i, I just love i love their choices i love kind of like the zeppelin has their own kind of approach to the old blues pre-war yeah. blues stuff but um for me yeah this has again just continues that blues hypnosis on the record there's this more I don't mean this to sound in a bad way. Theirs sounds a little more fanish to me in the mm-hmm. sense that their approach is so, I would argue, reverent <laughs> that Zeppelin kind of puts their own Zeppelin spin, you know, Lemon Song, things like that, kind of yep. take it into this other place. But I feel like the Stones are such fans of that material that they can't help themselves but to be reverent of it, even though it sounds vital. And I would argue this is probably the best of the blues tracks i mean on the record i know it's a cover but you know of the many many blues dirges on this record this is to me the highlight and uh yeah i really love it i love the choice i love the approach all that stuff yeah and you're right about zeppelin in in that at first you know they were just mercilessly attacked as being these you know ripping off the blues but the truth is that you're right they arguably did the most new things with the blues, whereas the stones were more reverent and just kind of hung back in the blues idiom. And whereas, whereas, you know, now we can look back and see that Zeppelin really, there would probably be no white stripes. They really transformed the blues and showed that it could be translated into something completely different, a different kind of id. It's amazing what they did. And and it's amazing to think about that moment in time where you get not just the stones and Zeppelin, but you get bands like the Stooges and, in the 60s, 
it was all born. It's like this big bang. <laughs> it was this big bang. You mean of like genre. of like garage, yeah, blues, yeah, and and it's stuff. It's shockwaves that we're still experiencing to this day, and it's shockwaves that we haven't quite shook. You know, even the experimental stuff. You know, really, all a lot of it, most of it, I would argue, has roots in the '60s. So it's just, it's just mind-boggling to me. Yeah, you mean extending to like Can and all the things that came out at the time that ended up spinning off into their own genres. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Like techno is kind of born from people fucking around on a mellotron. You know, <laughs> like so. Yeah, 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 yeah. Sure, sure. Craft work in the early. Yeah. No, you're right. There was a big bang. I'm starting to read a lot of things that says. 1971 the year of the change because it's now 50 years since 1971 you have what's going on and all the sticky fingers and records like that but you can argue in a way for 1971 or roughly around this period for being yeah. genres are just being created yes there's people who say what the 60s ended in 73 like that's some of the prevailing <laughs> <laughs> the prevailing wisdom right probably true look so, at goat's head soup <laughs> you know uh, so that brings us to the, the uh, second to last track on the record, Shine a Light. So you stretched out in room 1009 with a smile on your face and a tear in your eye. Oh, come see the Carolina. beautiful song and i guess mick co-wrote this with leon russell no that's what it says so he's just not he's just straight up not credited kind of thing i guess i don't know it says it was a uh, largely a mick jagger leon russell composition that i guess started in 68 when you know brian obviously was still around in the picture and it was originally titled get a line on you and was a song that dealt with uh, brian jones's addiction Oh, it's so funny you say that because I really read this song as being about Brian. Yeah. Berber jewelry jangling down the street, make you shut your eyes, every woman that meet, um, with a smile on your face and a tear right in your eye. I think there is something about this that does a kind of sad, it's kind of a sad song toward, toward a friend. Um, yeah. you, you you take it originally as being about a woman, but I I could see how it could be about someone like Brian. The ending to this record is really beautiful because this is big and sweeping and heartfelt. And like you're saying, you know, whether it's a friend or a woman, there's some deep relationship there. And it's not the kind of hollow relationship of a she loves you, he loves him kind of thing. It just it feels very intimate and grandiose at the same time. So I was very impressed with this song, actually. And I guess... Leon Russell actually recorded a version of it in 69. It was titled Can't Seem to Get a Line on You. And Jagger sang lead vocals on it. And Ringo was on the drums. I had no idea any of this shit. Uh, but we'll play a little bit of those. So you stretched out in room 1009. Smile on your face. And I did. They were all on uh, Leon's first record, which is great, that blue one with Hummingbird and all that. And if you look at the musicians on it, it's all the Beatles and the Stones. 
Yeah. <laughs> Charlie Watts is playing drums on yeah. it. Ringo's playing. I mean, if you don't have that record, listeners just stop, drop everything. And just, even if you're in the shower right now, just run out and yeah. get the record. Clean off get the dressed. road in the car. Just, Clean off the road yeah. in the car. Just, just get the record. But it's all, <laughs> it's a kind of a heaven of, of late sixties, London sash cats, but that's crazy. He needs to be credited on this song. Jesus Christ, Mick and Keith, what are you doing? I don't know. I don't know. Give the man his due, but, but angels beating on all their wings in time and smile on their faces and gleam right in their eye. It's a lot of beautiful imagery and, you're right. It's one of the most beautiful songs in their catalog and it ends the record, you know, pretty much beautiful. I consider that the end of the record and yes. sort of the next track is almost like, you know, the postscript. Yeah. Know? So by the way, we'll be back with our <laughs> evil shit, you know. <laughs> <laughs> track 18, Soul Survivor. kind of an epilogue a little bit of a i don't know it's to me it was a nice way to leave the record because you are left on such a high after shine a light because it is again it's an appropriate big ender for a record so there's space to hang out there but i pulled these lyrics it's just really beautiful stuff ain't giving me no quarter i'd rather drink seawater i wish i'd never had brought you it's gonna be the death of me all the sunken ships, you know, pirate imagery. Of, but I always thought when I was a kid, I thought he was, the opening line was when the walruses rust. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess it's when the waters is rough. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, the, all this stuff, <laughs> graveyard watch and the sailing is tough and stowaway at sea and mutiny. It's, it's all there. This track to me could have gone anywhere in the record. Yeah. Anywhere. It could have been first. It could have been last. It could have been in the middle. It's just a, a great middle ground Stones tune. Not a single, not a not a filler, but just right there chugging yeah. along, being a great Stone song. It's and it does have that ending that waves goodbye as it's receding in the distance. <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, that's it. That's Exile on Main Street. Uh, that's this, us. <laughs> yeah, we're shifting into the salty seas, but we'll get into a bit of reception here. <laughs> You've just recorded your first number one. Wow, an award statue! Oh, it's a Grammy! The album was, I mean, it may have been critically mixed, but it was a huge, huge hit record around the world. Number one in the UK, number one in the US. Number one in Norway, Spain, the Dutch album charts, Canada, number two in Australia, two in Sweden, two in Germany, hit number seven in uh, Japan. So it's, it, yeah, that and that's the original performance. So it, in retrospect, it's been reissued and stuff, but that speaks to the Stones' um, star power at the time. And even if this record was confusing to people, uh, it clearly wasn't confusing to the fans. In fact... I'd like to leave the discussion with a quote from Jack White. <laughs> Jack was quoted saying about this record, quote, I love this record because it would really confuse a journalist. And I think that that's a great, <laughs> just a great sentiment. Yeah. 
Because yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And wood. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And then I think they created it. They had built up all this credit of number one records and, you know, all this. And they could afford to do a piece of art, essentially, and, and have it still go to number one and still propel a tour because they're just, I would argue, it's their first art record since maybe something they did in the 60s as sort of pop art, you know. Um yeah it's kind of like their version of an art record at the time. And, and it stands that way. It's fine art, you know, in a funny way. It's, it's like, I hope that people do exactly what you said it's for, which is I hope they just put it on at a party rather than encase it in amber and in glass in a museum. But I hope they just crack it open, drink like you did, drink whiskey to it, put it on at a party, take a road trip with it, really enjoy it for the rock and roll that it's meant to be, you know? Well, speaking of rock and roll, Luther, thank you so much for joining me today to talk about this record. You, sir, are rock and roll. Do you have anything you want to plug while you're here? You got anything going on you want to? I mean, there's a lot of things on deck. I I know um, something coming out in September. It's going to be my old band with Jacob Dylan. That is a bit of a news flash, but the original demo tape that we did in the 80s, it's going to be released by a label called Omnivore. So it's a kind of an interesting thing where this original demo tape I made with Jacob um, and the band we had, the Boot Hills, is is finally kind of seeing the light of day and there's all this unearthed kind of stuff. And it's a really great little tape. So, yeah, I think that's coming out September 24th. But I appreciate you having me and asking me. I feel honored to be asked to be part of this, considering everything that's gone down with, with this particular show. And um, just very cool to reacquaint with the record and just sit down and talk to you about it i love doing that there's nothing i love doing more than just (laughs) rapping about music i could i could talk to you about music for endlessly and so i really appreciate you uh you coming on here and i hope you'll come on again and we can get lost in a different record that's part absolutely part of why i love this show so much is because it gives you an excuse to get lost in a record that either you haven't heard before or one of your favorites and so yeah. Thanks for taking this journey with me, man. This is so Yeah, cool. and thank you, uh thank you, Mick, Keith, Charlie, Mick. Leon. Leon. How many Micks are we talking about? <laughs> Leon, <laughs> Billy, there's Bobby. Yeah, Billy, Bobby, all the Angela. <laughs> <laughs> the whole rogue cast of characters. The tribe, as they called it, right? The tribe, as they called it. <laughs> yeah. And uh hello and goodbye to everyone out there. Go put on the record. Drink some whiskey, man. Drink some Some cheap whiskey. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have an opinion about the album we discussed today? Contact us at at now here this podcast on Instagram at now here this pod on Twitter, facebook.com slash now here this podcast, or email us at now here this official at gmail.com. See you next time. I'm Paul Kaminsky. And I'm James Kaminsky. And we are the co-hosts of the Third Men Podcast. We are a Jack White history podcast where we go over the White Stripes, Third Man Records, the list goes on. And occasionally, we do a funny voice or two. So you're going to probably want to get used to that. Or turn it off. Whatever your preference. Or whatever turns you on. (laughs) Hey now. 
you're an all-star, because occasionally we'll do an all-star podcast. We did do an entire Smash Mouth episode once, that is true. <laughs> we are every other week on Wednesdays, and we are available on iTunes and really wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, so why don't you come on and find yourself a little home here with us? We promise we'll be weird roommates. If I want to do the dishes without my pants on, that's my deal. That was weird, see? We weren't even lying. <laughs> You are all invited to join us on a magical mystery trip through the lives of the Beatles every week on the Yesterday and Today podcast. This show details the chronological journey of the world's most famous band using music, interviews, and rarities collected since the debut of John, Paul, George, and Ringo onto the world stage. We're a fan-made production, and we're available now on iTunes and wherever you find your podcasts. So sit back, relax, and download the stream. We hope you will enjoy the show. Well, hey, Ryan. Hey, Paul. How are you? Well, I'm good. I'm here to tell the listeners that if they'd like to contribute Mm. to help keeping these Now Hear This episodes coming, well, they can donate featuring the wonderful new donation technology that ACAST has developed for us. That's right. ACAST has helped us out. They host the show. Yeah, our hosts, ACAST, have made it really easy to donate to the show. They have an ACAST supporter feature, and there's a link in the show description that you can follow to kick a couple bucks for the show. It can be five bucks, a hundred bucks, less than a dollar. We don't care. Yeah, just something to keep the lights on. It's all out of pocket, and we do this out of love, and that's it. And we love you all for listening. Thank you very much for doing that. Couldn't said it better myself. (laughs) Okay. All right, well, bye then.